welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hi, welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. And my guest today is Arthur Erickson with Helio. Arthur, welcome. Thanks for having me. I am glad to be chatting with you about drones, ag, and all things in between. It's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. Uh, did I get Helio right, by the way? Yeah, actually, you, you are one of the few people that got that right. I'm impressed. I listened, I listened to something and I said, wait, I'm not say, I wanted to say Helio, but then I heard, heard you or somebody else say it. And I went, ah, Helio, that actually makes more sense. Yeah, um, it's per, it, it's spelled Helio, so I don't blame you for thinking that. But yeah, Helio, it, it's named for the Greek god of the sun, Helios, actually. Well, and you could see helicopters like and there's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff there. It's like there's a lot of good stuff going on with that. So that's right. So let's start with the real basics so our guests know what the heck is going on here. Helio, drones. Okay. So tell us, give us the 30 second clip on what Helio does. Simply put, Helio is an ag tech company that designs, manufactures, and then sells crop spraying drones. So these drones are going out and they're spraying crop inputs, which take the form of fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides in general, basically anything that helps farmers increase their yields. It doesn't have to just be liquid either. We uh, can spray liquid payloads, but also granular, aka solid payloads for uh, the same purposes, for improving yields and just making farms more successful. That's what we do in a nutshell. Yeah, and that's cool. I'm really actually very interested in agricultural technologies precision agriculture. We'll dig into a whole bunch of those intersectional things. But your background doesn't scream, I'm going to be building tractors in the sky. So tell us a bit about your background, including that weird interlude with fracking, because that's an odd <laughs> it's an odd progression to get here. Oh, well, I just live in South Texas. So almost every engineer, I think, uh, regardless of discipline, has at least one internship on a fracking rig or a fracking site. Occupational uh, hazard. <laughs> Yeah, so that was a brief dalliance with with ONG, which, like I said, is kind of unavoidable here in Texas. But my educational background is aerospace engineering. I got a four-year degree. Well, it took me five years because I <laughs> I was doing helio. But I, I got an undergrad degree, I should say, in aerospace engineering from UT Austin. And our curriculum, as you might imagine, did heavily involve drone-related technology. So I got a lot of my foundational technical skills, which I which I utilize at my company today, from that education. But you're right, as far as the, the ag stuff goes, besides growing up in and around farms and ranches with, with friends and family down here in Texas, I am not a farmer, I'm not a rancher officially, but it is just something that I've always been drawn to conceptually. I, I very much like the intersection of automation and robotics with an age-old uh, industry, which is food production that I think is very important and very impactful. And so I, I just like that the stakes are so high, I guess, for lack of a better word. Literally you know, helping people put, put food on the table gets me excited. Yeah. It, now, it's an interesting thing because you, know, you started the company long enough ago that you know having high-capacity drones with sufficient payloads to do precision crop dusting probably wasn't something that everybody thought was reasonable. 
So what was your aha moment? When did you say, no, there's something here that I can do something with? Well, that's a good point. So companies started back in 2015. For the first two years, it was a bunch of ideation design, both in hardware and software, just getting some minimally viable products out just just for testing, not really even to customers. So that took, I mean, it's aerospace, it's drone stuff. So it's not just like a, a social media app where you can just create a stay up all night, create a prototype and then launch it the next day. So it, it took us a good year and a half or two years. 2017 comes by, we do a little bit of drone delivery and then we moved to the ag space, which brings us to the point you brought up. At that time in 2017, you're right, drones are extremely small. Uh, the first drone we made only had a four gallon payload which I, I, I shouldn't poo-poo that too hard because four no, gallons is still very effective. But it was definitely much smaller than I think a lot of the, the wider far, farmer market thought was feasible. And so to solve that problem, what we did as a company was we didn't try to sell it to anyone. We sold it to ourselves. So oh. I, I've mentioned this before, but we were our own first customer. At least that's how I like to look at it because for three years from 2017 to 2020, we just used our own drones that we designed and made as our tools for for offering spray services. So that was our first uh. revenue stream as a company. We were service providers. It's because we knew, like you pointed out, that probably this isn't mature enough for people to get on board yet. So we're going to prove it. First of all, we're going to get the hands-on experience using it to make it better, but we're also just going to prove by being our own first customer that this thing is economically viable. So that's what got us to where we are today. Like I said, about three years of, of actually being out in the field, working 10, 20, 10 12 hours a day, spraying with our drones, getting through all the headaches and bugs and manufacturing defects that we ourselves created, learning from those and making the product better. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually a really interesting sideline because customer testing is, you know, with an app, so many apps and stuff that you alluded to, people say, well, I'd really love an app that made this better for me. So I'm going to write it. And then they have a customer base of one, but you guys have actually got a significant global market. What is it? Twenty-four uh, percent of the world's land area is under cultivation. Is the, you know is the landmass. So that's a non-trivial amount. Like thirty-eight percent is used for cattle grazing and growing crops. And we gotta put fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides on those crops. You know, and so that's an interesting space to be in. And you guys have actually got your hands dirty. Well, okay, so. Let's let's paraphrase dirty. You're actually putting electrons into a drone standing beside a field where it might be dusty. Then the drone does all the work. You know, the dirtiest you get is probably splashing of pesticides when you're filling up the drone. But that's it. So what was your biggest insight? What was your biggest aha moment out of actually running the drones yourself? What was the coolest thing? Well, the first aha moment was... Let me explain how we even got into agriculture. So there. when we first started the company, we were doing what we call just a general purpose light to medium payload drone system. And we envisioned this was going to be like a plug and play system that was easy enough and reliable enough for anybody to utilize, typically like in a B2B sense. So we thought that this thing could be outfitted with a payload delivery mechanism for for last mile delivery of medicine, food, mm -hmm. whatever, but also you could swap it out with a, a tank like we do with the ag here. So you could spray crops with it. We thought it would be a, we thought Helio would be just, I don't even know how to say this, providing a base platform that other people would go in and modify for their own unique business cases, right? 
So we did that for about nine or 10 months. We really fell in love with ag though. And the aha moment, the reason why we even got into it was because one day we were doing a drone delivery project in Costa Rica. And I just remember we were on a bridge in a town called Cartago, which is like south of San Jose. It's a suburb of, of the capital down there. And I was just looking over um, like a small farm, I believe it was a, a bean field, and they were spreading fertilizers or maybe it was pesticides, I don't even know, by hand. So I remember mm-hmm. seeing two or three laborers out there just touching the stuff with their hands, spreading it haphazardly. And they were doing so because they just, they didn't have any other options. So mm-hmm. Central America and a lot of developing countries aren't like the US where they have this infrastructure where you've got these awesome John Deere tractors and like all this middle management in the act space that's willing to do this this professional work for you with the right equipment and, and whatnot. So it just left to like the the farmers themselves. I mean, like the the grassroots people are out there like doing this stuff by hand because they have no other means. And so that struck me and I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I think our drones are the answer. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure. There's a bunch of other cool things to do in the drone space, but ag is the one that I think we're going to have the biggest impact in. So that was the aha moment to get into ag. Now, to answer your earlier question, what epiphanies did we have along the way? Hmm. Interesting question. It feels like it was more like death by a thousand cuts or not death, but rebirth. I I think it was just a, a fundamental humbling experience to just understand how many things could possibly go wrong with the deployment of a drone for the agricultural use cases. There are so many variables. I mean, it's a multidisciplinary product, right? You've got aerospace, you've got controls, programming, you've got the the whole ag side of it, which is like a whole other thing. I mean, people have dedicated their entire lives. I mean, human civilization has revolved around improving agriculture since the dawn of time. So there's there's that intermixed with aerospace and, and computer science. It, it was just humbling. I, 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 I couldn't tell you there's an aha moment in those three years where we were spraying as a service. It was it was just a, an experience that taught me how hard this is and, and and therefore proved to me how valuable what we were building was. But the harder it got, the more I was convinced that this is something we have to continue doing. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you, you talk about drone delivery, and you know I I looked at um, Zuckerberg's statement I think in 2014 or something saying we'll have drone delivery next year, and I said not a chance, not a chance for this you know a variety of reasons which you found out as you kind of explored the space, you know out of line of sight. Drone usage, even in the wilds, requires FAA approval. And in cities, you know, come on, that's going to be a not a chance. And then there's payload problems, and there's range problems, and there's last meter delivery stuff. Like oh, we're going to drop a, we're going to take a a drone that's capable of carrying something somebody wants to get at home with a six or eight foot wingspan, and we're going to hover it outside their balcony or drop it on the sidewalk outside their apartment building or put it in their backyard. You know, there's just so many interesting intersectional barriers. What about pets? What happens when Fido sees this massive thing lowering into their front yard and chase and charges it? You know, just so many barriers, which mostly don't exist in agriculture. But there's a few things in there that are interesting. So one of the people I spoke to is Grant Canary of Drone Seed. I don't know if you've met Grant or have been aware of Grant, but he he has very stuff stuff like yours, heavy lift drones, eight foot wingspans, 120 pounds, 60 pounds of payload of seedlings in moss pucks, which very much like you guys, he has pre-programmed paths for them over burn areas 
in the Pacific Northwest, and he drops them in exactly the right place on pre-programmed paths, which is one of the things you guys do. So he's got actually approval to run drone swarms out of line of sight. So are you guys out of line of sight? How much FAA involvement have you had in this? I mean, there's an interesting question of the regulatory approvals there. Yeah, so there is some leniency in the in the ag world. There is something that the FAA uh, has told us they're they're calling quote unquote uh, temporary out of line of sight flight, and it's because basically working with them uh, for so long, we've gone back and forth on on just how to craft these regulations. We're not legislatures, but of course our input matters because we're we're one of the most prolific applicants, right? We put in waiver applications for all of our customers. So that's at least hundreds, if not thousands at this point. So anyway, they came up with this thing, which is basically like, yeah, you're going to go over the far end of a cornfield and you might dip out of line sight for a number of seconds, maybe a few minutes at most. That's fine. As long as you demonstrate that you have enough redundancies in your in your automation to to account for things. Like if the drone does uh, run out of batteries on the far end and you can't intercede as the pilot and tell it to come home, is it going to automatically come home knowing that it's running out of mm-hmm. batteries? In the case for Helio, yes. So yes, for our customers, they are allowed to be temporarily out of line of sight. So the answer is not exactly black and white. No, we don't have full beyond visual line of sight for extended missions, but we do have this temporary allowance. And that's important because you know it's been a very slow progression for UAV regulatory approvals. For a long time, there were 400 feet, line of sight only, single operator or a single drone, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and size limitations. But your your drones are awfully big. I mean, I, I mentioned the Grant Canary drone size. How big do yours get and how, how much weight are they carrying at peak? Our biggest drone at the moment, which you can see on our site, and maybe you've seen it, is the AG-272. And it can carry about 200 pounds worth of payload. And wow. tip to tip, it is... I think off the top of my head, just over 14 feet, tip to tip. Oh, that, okay. So you're dwarfing Grant Canary's seed drones. That is quite impressive. I hadn't realized it was that big. No, I mean, yeah. And um, it's, it, you know, bigger isn't always better. Like the, Their seed drones are, are adequate for what they're trying to do with them, their use case. And seeds aren't super, super heavy. But yeah, no, we've met with Drone Seed. actually had plenty oh. of productive conversations with them. And it's really cool what they're doing. And they are in a lot of ways, forefathers in this space in terms of like getting mm-hmm. those regulatory approvals before really anyone did. So yeah, I've, I've got to shout out to Drone Seed because their 137 is definitely the basis. Their 137 waiver is the basis for everybody else's 137 waiver in the space practically. Because I think they got theirs back in 2013, 2014 or something but quite early. Yeah. I don't remember the exact yeah. day or exact year. My memory says from talking to Grant that they had 46 people from the FAA on one call because they were like, everybody was trying to figure out, everybody at the FAA <laughs> was trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, and I, I've been looking at, I looked at FAA approval processes and stuff for a long time. I, I spent a bunch of time looking at the airborne wind energy space. I don't know if you know it, but use kites, generate electricity. Google's McCanny had a space there. And a lot of them, basically, they're tethered, but they're tethered drones. Mm. They're tethered autonomous vehicles. And so they have to apply for all the same regulatory stuff. There's no operators, so they have to apply for autonomous operation and stuff. Interesting. Now, yeah. Uh, and complete failure of a space. I've talked to some of the leaders in the space, and you know, some of them actually knew it at the time. But it's a really interesting space to do engineering in. 
really interesting aerospace engineering problem just with no utility, unlike what you're doing. It's a good tax (laughs) write-off for these big companies, right? Good R&D tax credit. (laughs) What I used to say about the airborne wind energy space was you scratch one of those people and you find a kite surfer. And they're all in places with great kite surfing weather. McCanny was on Hawaii and it moved there from, I think, San Diego. But now with the urban air mobility stuff, the electric VTOLs that are supposed to fly over children Mm -hmm. playing in schoolyards with Mm -hmm. stuff like that folds and stuff, no paths of certification. I say that if you scratch one of those people, you find an airborne wind energy person. There's a whole bunch of people from that space. It was hilarious. (laughs) I just found like Joby, which is one of the big players. They used to be, they started out as an airborne wind energy organization and they failed miserably there because it's a stupid space Mm -hmm. with really fun engineering. And now they're doing this other stuff, which is a stupid space with really fun engineering. And lots of money thrown at it to be stupid. Moving people, I mean, conceptually, that's a good idea. I I am very hesitant to get onto a drone. That's going to transport me anywhere. But <laughs> I think, I <laughs> think the idea because, is because you're a professional. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen what can go wrong. I'll say that much. Yeah. So, but let's talk about the space because you're intersecting in a space where flying aircraft over fields and spraying stuff or driving tractors over fields and spraying stuff are two existing technologies but now you're doing it with drones and i see you know some uh, there's a bunch of significant intersectional advantages of that so why don't we start with what came before what you guys are capable of doing what were the downsides to it so the big two things right are airborne sprayers that are manned so you've got your helicopters in your airplanes, and then you've got your terrestrial ground sprayers, which are manned traditionally as well. So your big self-propelled sprayers made by John Deere, Case, what have you. And let's say simply put, cost is is a, a problem in both of those areas. Some of these new self-propelled John Deere sprayer tractors, for example, can run, well, I think new ones run upwards of half a million at the minimum. Mm-hmm. Used ones, maybe you can find one for like two to 300,000, a smaller one if it's 20 years old. But up front, they're very expensive. Running them, so running any of these ground sprayers you know, per hour, you might be spending, let's say on the low end, maybe 100 bucks. But with where diesel is and just rising cost of everything, you're probably like 150, 200 bucks per hour running those. So both, yeah, initial costs, operating costs, quite expensive. Same goes with airplanes and helicopters. I mean, we're talking anywhere from, let's say, 300K to a million for, for one of those aircraft. And then not to mention, you've got this really expensive insurance. So typically 50 to 100K per year for those things. Danger to your life if you're a pilot. Lawsuits because there's a lot of drift involved in, in that methodology of, of applying crop inputs. So uh, you're a huge target. I mean, people see an airplane, they hear one coming, they hear a helicopter, they're going to call the FAA. They're going to call the EPA. I've heard that complaint thousands of times at this point from from people in the space. So yeah, I don't want to meander too much on the, on the topic, but yeah, cost is a big issue. Precision is the other big issue. And that's where drones supersede both of these traditional methods. So they're much cheaper. Uh, you could buy, mm, let's do a quick comparison. So again, that John Deere sprayer that I mentioned, let's say it's half a million. You could probably do Realistically, considering all factors, probably, let's say, 75 to 100 acres per hour. Now, to do that with Helio drones, you would need 
two of our 272s and they're about mm -hmm. 70k each so you're looking at let's call it like 150 or even 200,000 to get everything so the trailer the batteries the chargers etc to have the equivalent efficiency of two Leo drones up against one of these these tractors so you're already what 40% of the price so you're 200k instead of 500k so much cheaper up front your operating cost is probably more like 30, 40 bucks per hour versus the 150 to 200 bucks per hour uh, for that tractor. So a quarter of the operating costs. And you can simply just get out and spray uh, much more precisely and faster with less headache with the drones than you could with the tractor. So tractor can't go out when it's muddy out, for example. And oftentimes when it rains, that's when you have the most fungal pressure on your crops. So it rains, you have a three or four day window there to, to really get in there and kill that fungus before it takes 10%, 20% of your yield. You can't get out there with a the tractor. Yes, you can get out there with the drones. They don't care, of course, that the ground is muddy. If you have a bunch of fence lines, tree lines, perhaps irregularly shaped corners in your field, it's going to be a, a hassle to get that tractor in and out of there. You're going to be running over a crop as you turn. You're going to be compacting the soil. There's, there's so many again, I guess I use this phrase already, but like death by a thousand cuts when you use these tractors, there are so many drawbacks and, and people have only been using tractors because that's all we had. But of course now, you know, we're talking about the drone age where, where yes, now there's a uh, finally a better way to do these things. So yeah, that was, that was a long answer, but I hope that, uh, no. was at least a little bit insightful. Well, I'm actually going to pull it apart a little bit more because I'm, I'm, interested in soil compaction. One of the people I spoke to a, you know, a year and a half ago was um, Karsten Teme, who's the CEO of Pivot Bio. Don't know if you know those guys or not. Um, I heard the name, but, not, not super familiar. Yeah. Cool people. So different nerdy background to yours. He's a PhD, he and his partner are PhDs of agrogenetics. And so for them, their big thing was, let's reverse engineer the genetic structure of nitrogen-fixing microbes and inject them into plants. So we make plants fix their own nitrogen. And they, that was really, really insanely hard because they're going to genetically engineer a plant. Oh my God, that's tough. And so they're going out for coffee going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, wait, why don't we just turn the nitrogen sensor off in the microbe? The microbes mm. are lazy, like all human beings. You know, it's like, I don't know if you've ever been thinking fast and slow. We're lazy. We just, if there's an easy way to do something, we're going to do it. And microbes are the same way. If they only produce nitrogen in the absence of nitrogen, they get the plant sugars and they mul multiply. But if we put on nitrogen in the form of ammonia-based fertilizers, you know, which mm. is a significant problem, which I'm going to talk about a bit, then the microbes in the soil kind of go, oh, look, nitrogen. I'm just going to eat, drink, and multiply. Sure. So what they did, they said, little, little switch, little genetic tweak to the microbe, dick. Brew them like brewer's yeast, use them with precision agriculture techniques, coat the seeds, they grow and multiply with the plant at the roots, and they fix nitrogen from the soil constantly. So they had, when I spoke to them, this is a year and a half ago, they had a million acres of corn under management. Hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah right? pretty cool. Now, one of his things was one of the advantages for his stuff was a lot fewer tractor runs over the fields. You know, because instead of doing five, potentially five runs with fertilizer, you could do maybe two. And so the soil compaction aspect really is a big assist for soil health and vitality over time. So you guys are doing the same thing, but 
in a very different way. You're avoiding that flow of compaction. And now for me, this is, I'm not an agricultural guy. I just think it's really interesting. How big a factor is that from your perspective and your clients' perspectives? It is so contextual. It depends on the crop, the area, the equipment that you ran over the, the soil with. Don't the biggest hit. it. Yeah, don't don't hold me to it, but maybe like three to ten percent yield loss okay. is, is generally what I've seen. But that oh, I'm wow. in a in a low margin business, that's big, right? I mean, yeah, 10% up to a 10% haircut is pretty serious. So yeah, that's wow. not again, that's not gonna be the same for everybody, but it I, I've seen numbers in that range. Yeah, given that you can do, I mean, the, the numbers I saw 24 acres with a single drone, you know, you can do, you know, I think on your website, you know. And that's in an hour, you know, you kind of sit there and say, okay, well, you can do all of a lot of land of corn or grain or something with these things and avoid soil compaction with for like, like right now you're doing fertilizer, herbicides, pesticides, anything else? Am I missing one? Oh, fungicides. Yeah, um, pretty much everything. The one thing we don't do is your, your pre-season heavy like npk fertilizers because that typically yep. calls for at least a few hundred pounds per acre yep. so that is definitely better done with some sort of like large ground rig typically that's but but everything else so mid-season late season all the sides pesticides fungicides herbicides insecticides etc yeah what gr- drones are great for foliar feed fertilizers too so stuff that you would do again when the crop's already up so maybe like some micronutrients zinc or, or something to that effect mm-hmm well, let's let's tear this part of it because the precision part is interesting. So let, let, I'm going to start with one question, which is crop spraying. You got an electrical lines along one side of the field. How much can a standard crop sprayer, uh, an aerial crop sprayer, manage to get in there versus your drones? Because that's one of the key edge conditions, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. And again, this is very contextual, but you're probably missing. 10 to 20% worth of the edges of the field. If you're, these, these bites have to pull up right where the power line is. Yeah. So you're pulling up well before the power line. So you don't risk killing yourself. So there is that whole edge of the field where, where you're just not able to get any effective efficacy or spray down to, to where it needs to go. So yeah, another thing, another thing that's, that's cutting into your yields if you're using airplanes. So I, I guess with an airplane, of course, you're avoiding soil compaction. That's good, but you're losing out on, on this, this lack of precision or due to this lack of precision, I should say. And well, I, yeah, go on. What's what's the wastage? I mean, I'm, I'm just, you, you mentioned flow over over roads and other crops and stuff like that. What I, I feel like there should be, there's just part of the business cases, you're going to spend 20% less on your, on your products and your additives. I mean, yeah, what, I mean, that's, you, that's one thing. <laughs> yeah. That, there is research. Okay. I don't want to, put the car before the horse here and <laughs> I, I don't want to say anything that's going to get me to trouble, but I'll just say very, very vaguely, there is research that is probably going to come out later this year or early next year that is showing that with drones due to the physics of the application, uh, where you're spraying a much finer, like almost like a mist like application, you're getting a lot better coverage and penetration with that chemically and physically. So, so with drones, you're actually able to get away with spraying, let's say, 30 to 50% fewer chemicals per acre than you would with an airplane or tractor. So not only are you covering more of the field, so you're not missing the edges like we just talked about with an airplane, you're covering more of the field, 
but you're using less chemical and overall volume. So overall solution volume to less water and chemical per acre. And that's anywhere from 30 to 50% savings in input, co input costs for that application, which is huge. I mean, that's, that's massive. So oh, yeah, I'm yeah, not trying to get anyone in trouble. And no, 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 I, I won't hold you to this. Yeah. The paper will come out. It'll be peer reviewed, but that exceeds my expectations. And I'm, you know, not surprised to find my expectations exceeded. I mean, I, I've, you know, dealt a lot with aviation, as you can see from my computer generated electric air, aircraft and mm -hmm. et cetera, mm -hmm. on my, my backdrop here. But yeah, so thinking through that, the wingspan of 14 feet, the, the wingspan of a crop duster is probably 30 or 40 feet with the spray nozzles. Yeah, depends on the plane, could be bigger, but yeah. Yeah. And so the the ability to what I know that there's different speeds you can go at in different altitudes. Do your drones run lower than airplanes typically do? You know, I wouldn't necessarily even say that. Okay. I've seen a lot of crazy ag pilots that get pretty low. <laughs> One of the key differences is that we do have a completely different like flight profile envelope or whatever you want to call it. So airplanes coming in, it's typically traveling pretty dang quickly right so at least let's call it like at least 40 knots i think typically faster so you're yeah. dumping payload and then you're just leaving and so it's really up to gravity and favorable conditions hopefully in terms of wind and stuff to allow that that spray to actually get where it needs to to the intended target now with drones yeah you're traveling about 25 miles per hour but so okay you're traveling slower and you're also hovering over the area as you're spraying it and you're you're using the downwash from the propellers to actually push all that down into the crop. So you're not leaving it up to, to chance or, or the environment being favorable. You're mechanically with the propellers pushing down the spray. So you're getting much more, or I should say your, your drift risk is much mitigated using drones because of that. And that's, yeah, that's something that I think a lot of people overlook like farmers that, that just aren't familiar with the space, but that's a really important factor. You're getting a lot more bang for your buck uh, because of that. Well, and what? how high above the crops do you normally fly? Is there a variance there depending on what you're applying? Yeah, yeah. And actually, yes, yeah, I didn't even answer that. But yeah, because of this downwash effect, you can fly at 15 feet above the crop and you're still not worried about drift because we're talking about 400 pounds of downward force, four to 500 pounds. So even if you're flying 10 feet or 15 feet above the crop, it doesn't make much of a difference. It's still getting where it needs to go. Whereas an airplane... Yeah, I mean, they might fly 10 to 15 feet as well, but they don't have that advantage of that downwash. So that, that's the that's the difference I'm trying to trying to. Yeah, explain. I'm thinking through it. Yeah, when like Grant was uh, talking to me about helicopters doing seed drops, and they just blew all over the place with no precision, landed on rocks, landed in water, blah, blah, blah. But that's actually not something I thought about. I'm thinking about the vortices between behind a propeller, a propeller and behind the air, the plane wings. Because they are creating vortices behind that are not only throwing pushing stuff down, but pushing stuff up. So as the yeah, stuff sure. comes out, it's going in a chaotic fluid dispersal behind it. Whereas your vortices are all straight down. You are mm -hmm. pushing stuff in, which is actually yeah, not something I'd thought about. Huh. Okay. I, I Yeah, I'd say with the airplane, you're more pushing it out, right? It's kind of yeah. like a pigtails, like corkscrews. And, and what that means is that you're going to end up with, you know, if there's any lateral wind, you're going to get a lot more drift laterally than with your, your application. That's right. That's right. There's just not enough downward vector force there. 
Was this a bit surprising for you when you found out you could run it at 10 to 15 feet? Because my initial first principles assumption was you'd be running closer to the crops. What was your original thinking versus how you arrived at 10 to 15 feet? Or did you always know this? Well, I'll tell you what. It, yeah, it's pretty obvious when you just get out there and just do it once because you can see. <laughs> yeah, you'll just see, again, the spray just going straight down. And it, it is, I mean, probably you're protected, I would venture to say, like, 20 to 30 feet even above the crop you would still have let's say 90 percent or more of your spray going straight down below the drone these are just rough numbers depending yeah. on the droplet size the humidity etc but yeah I, I would venture to say something like that so it, it's it's something that once you see it you're just like oh okay that, that totally makes sense yeah. we do not need to be super careful about the altitude on these things but i will say Yes, a lot of farmers, for sure, because they're used to worrying about drift, uh, were, were wanting us to fly really low. Like before they even seen the drone spray, we said, hey, we're going to come spray your crops. Like, How high are you going to fly? Can you please fly at four feet, five feet? And we had to explain to them, no, 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 that's actually not necessary. You'll see. And then they saw and then they got it. Mm, yeah, it's, it is interesting because, you know, some of those chemicals, you just don't want them on human beings. Uh, to your point about the, you know, people in Costa Rica doing it with spreading them with their hands and stuff you know there's yeah, there's some stuff all. in there that's just not healthy like ammonia-based fertilizer let's let's start tearing apart the downstream implications of this because there's the implications for the farmer which is you know 30 to 50 percent lower expense for the various additives and field field stuff you put on the field there is there potentially 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 poten yeah 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 everybody listening yeah. Don't quote him on this until the peer-reviewed study comes out and gives the real numbers. Mm -hmm. But the question there is, the next piece is, as we think about the downstream, so agriculture right now is a climate change problem, as well described. It. It's a necessary evil to feed everybody, but that necessary evil is based upon the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution is based upon fossil fuel-based ammonia fertilizers and a bunch of other stuff. And fossil fuel-based fertilizers, basically they do steam reformation of natural gas, or they take coal methane and they steam reform it with lots of energy, typically from methane itself, and they make hydrogen. And that you know produces eight to 10 pounds uh, for, uh, for natural gas. So every pound of hydrogen comes with eight to 10 pounds of CO2 for steam reformation. And for coal, it's every pound is, oh, gee, uh, 10 up to 35 pounds, 20 to 35 pounds, depending upon the quality of the coal. So that's a climate problem to make the hydrogen. The hydrogen that again gets taken and put into ammonia plants where it gets combined with nitrogen from the air, because we're all breathing 78% nitrogen to make NH3, you know, nitrogen and three hydrogens. That's right. I had to think about that one for a second, which is ammonia, which, you know, when heavily diluted, we can clean stuff with, but we use aqueous ammonia, uh, dil somewhat diluted ammonia directly, and then we make ammonia and phosphate fertilizers as at mixed stuff. And then we put the ammonia on fields so that the nitrogen gets into the roots. That's back to that nitrogen fixing problem. And so there's this entire fossil fuel industry thing. 30 million tons of hydrogen get manufactured every year just to turn into ammonia. And then we put it in the field. And then we have problems with that because when ammonia goes onto a field, this is something I learned more about uh, the Pivot Bio Grant Carson Temme guy. When ammonia gets put on a field, 
it makes nitrous oxides, which have global warming potentials of 265 times CO2. So the combination is like, for the best case scenario, 10 to 12 times the mass of fertilizers get put in a field in terms of CO2E, right? So every extra ton of fertilizer we put in a field is extra tons of global warming stuff. So we've got to fix that. And I'm big on precision agriculture as one of the levers to do that. So when I talk to people like you, you know, it's like, oh, 30 to 50%. And you're doing not the heavy spraying, but you're doing the four times of spraying for extra fertilizer runs. That's a big difference in terms of climate change. You actually have a CO2E. So do you count that? Do you actually count that in how you think about this? Or are you going to start to count that and tell people about that you're a climate winner? I'm really careful about that because <laughs> the everybody it's everybody knows our, our batteries, for example, are quite dirty to make at this point. The the lipo batteries that, that we utilize in in EVs and drones in any of these you know, heavy duty vehicle type of type of applications. Yeah, it's, okay. I say dirty. It's not the cleanest thing, right? It's hard to put a number exactly how dirty uh, lipo manufacturing is, but the point is it's going to get better. At least I believe it's going to get better. Uh, as an optimistic engineer, you need to put money into an industry to to clean up the the refinery processes, refining processes, I should say, and the manufacturing and all of that. But yeah, I'm not I'm not going to tell anyone right now that oh, you know, Helio is for sure this carbon neutral or even carbon negative force in the world because I don't I don't truly believe the industry is there yet. In terms of like all the stuff that goes into it, but it will be. That's it will be. I think. Yeah, and maybe maybe you disagree with me. I'm not a climate scientist, so I'm probably speaking um at a, at a turn here. But uh, yeah, I just I, I I it wouldn't surprise me if we're still it's, not there yet. But I think that's what you sell a, yourself on. Yeah, it's way better potential. I mean, cars, uh, ICEs will never get there, but at least drones have the potential to get there, right? Well, anything and, that runs on electricity gets more virtuous with every passing year as more renewables enter exactly. the grid yeah. and less fossil fuels are built. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.